Cicero had to support Flaccus because Flaccus had showed up and helped Cicero a couple years before when Cicero needed help because there was this conspiracy against him. So Flaccus jumped in, helped him out, and now Cicero was beholden to extend a return of the favor. Little mafia thing going on. Now here's what Martin Goodman says in his book about this, this historical moment. He says, the, confisca- the confiscation, this is Flaccus taking the money, itself was not denied. So Cicero's defense of his client had to rest on the assertion that Flaccus's actions had, one, been legal, and two, on emotions stirred up by casting aspersions on the Jews. They asserted that the jury was being intimidated by the Jewish crowd outside the court. So the Jews were pretty upset that their gold had been stolen, and they were throwing a little bit of a protest outside of the court. And Cicero used that in his argument to support Flaccus, right? Because he really didn't have a whole lot left. So this, was, this next part is the part of Cicero's defense of Flaccus. This is actually recorded history. To resist this barbarian superstition, that means Jewish belief, was an act of firmness to defy the crowd of Jews when sometimes in our assemblies they were hot with passion. Remember hot with passion, okay? Because that has a lot to do with where we're going today. (laughs) Trust me. Just, Just cool your jets a little bit. Okay, just remember the words hot with passion. For the welfare of the state was an act of the greatest seriousness. Even while Jerusalem was standing and the Jews were at peace, the practice of those sacred rites of theirs was inconsistent with the splendor of our empire, the dignity of our name, the customs of our ancestors. So Cicero was arguing that the Jewish people were hot-headed and their beliefs were inconsistent with Roman life. He could, not, he could not imagine a state more incompatible with Judaism than Roman life. Now, not long after this, this is a little historical context, okay? Not long after this, we could pick up the story of Paul in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Okay, so now you're getting a picture of the whole empire. The whole empire is just, there's this thing happening with the Jewish people and the empire and frustrations. Um, The Jewish Christians had been kicked out of Rome with the other Jews by the Roman Emperor Claudius. And and here's the, the inscription we have, actually. It says, since Jews constantly made disturbances, hot with passion, at the instigation of Crestus, he, Claudius, expelled them from Rome. Okay? So let's pick up some more in Acts 18. Uh, It says, because Claudius had ordered the Jews to leave room, and this says, Paul went to see them, Priscilla and Aquila. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, 
he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Fast forward to verse 18. Paul stayed, in, stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centrea because of a, a vow he had taken. So Paul um, takes off with Priscilla and Aquila, stops at Centrea. Anybody remember who's from Centrea? Anybody? Romans 16.1. Let's do it. Phoebe, yeah. I, comm I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centrea. So there's a chance that this is where Paul met Phoebe. When he was getting his hair did in Centrea, he meets Phoebe. Don't you love this? And then Romans 16, 3 and 4, it says this, greet Priscilla and Aquila. So he's, Priscilla and Aquila are not with Paul anymore. They're back in Rome. Okay, they were kicked out. Now they're back. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. So, I want you to imagine for a second being kicked out of your home and your city. Lose your livelihood, your business. You lose time with family and friends. And to make matters worse, there's this inherent distrust because you are Jewish and you follow this Jesus character who is a would-be revolutionary who was executed. But you know that he was raised from the dead. And you come back and you come back to Rome and you try to get your business started again, and taxes are going up and up and up, and they seem to be just going up on you. <laughs> and there seems to be this suspicious eye on you all the time, and to make it all harder, your church is also different. There's a different vibe in your own church. And after a few years, Phoebe from Centrea shows up and performs a letter from Paul. And about two-thirds of the way through, you hear this. Romans 13, chapter 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except that which, is, which God established. Imagine hearing that. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will, you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, 
for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone you owe uh, what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Oh. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> the history of this passage is right up there with one of the worst interpretive historical passages in the history of the church. This passage from the 5th century on has been used as a sponsor of state military violence for centuries. Welcome to church. It's, a proof, it's been used as a proof text. Now, here's what I want to say. Biblical interpretation really, really matters especially when we start talking about the government. Because it has everything to do with people, all people. Now, if we parachute into this passage and, and just use it to prop up whatever government program or government law we want to have people abide by, it would be very dangerous. And it has been very dangerous. It would be used to abuse. And so we don't do that because it's all about context. Now, there are different facets of context. The immediate context of the letter, the before and the after of this passage, is really important. We'll get into that here in a second. The letter's larger context and overall purpose is something we've been working through the last few weeks. Then there's the political and religious situation of the Roman churches at the time of the letter, which we touched on a little bit today. And then there's Paul's kind of overarching theological perspective. And you get that from reading all of Paul's writings. Last week, we talked about being living sacrifices. Some of you are like, well, it feels like we're going backwards and then forwards again in Romans. And you would be right. <laughs> we started in, ver in chapter 16, then we went to 14 and 15, then we went to 12. Now we're in 13. So good luck trying to figure out where we're going to go next. But it's going to be chapters 9 through 11, just so you know. Anyhow, <laughs> um, and we talked about this idea of Paul saying, I want you to present your whole body, your whole mind, your whole life on the altar. And the Jewish people and the, and the Greco-Roman people would understand temple worship. And he's talking to them about this, participating in life as this Christ-formed person, Christiformity. And that each other... Okay? We express loving care for each other in that way. And we also express loving care and we seek peace with all the people who are outsiders in the sense they're not a part of the house churches. And Paul's overall purpose in Romans seems to be to proclaim the good news, but to apply the gospel into the situations of their Roman house church situation, like their, their, their context, and to spread the gospel out of that. But 
there was significant distrust amongst the people in the house church. And there was significant reason to distrust the Roman government. There were shenanigans. There were payoffs. There were groups being pushed out. There were groups being pushed up. There were backdoor deals. And I'm so glad we don't deal with that anymore in our government. There's just, I mean, we figured it out. 2,000 years of history, government's fine. I have to be honest that often there are things that rule and reign in our hearts instead of God's peace. And we talked about this a little bit last week, that this idea of being in Christ, and I, and I made this kind of silly kind of visual metaphor of like this dome of in Christness, and that you and I have the opportunity to drag things in from our culture into that world. So Paul, he, what tends to happen with passages like this is we read them into our cultural moment and neglect to look what comes before and what comes after. So we treat this sometimes like an independent text. And in your Bible, if you have a Bible open or if you're doing it on the, the app, what happens is, is we've, we've given chapter numbers and verse numbers, and then we've even done worse stuff. We've actually added these little phrases above passages, and they're really detrimental because it sounds like it's a whole different flow of thought, and it's not. So what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to invite Elena and Jaden up, and we're going to read what comes before this, and we're going to read what comes after this, and that'll help us forward. All right, so this passage is like, well, first of all, the fun little text is marks of a true Christian. Um, how sweet. Thanks, bye. Um, <laughs> it's like a machine gun of instruction, so try to stick with me. Um, Romans 12, 9 through 21. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit or hot with passion. <laughs> Serve the Lord. Did you add that? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I added that. Um, I'm distracted. I don't remember okay. that part. Okay, we're circling back. Right, Verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling of the law. Besides this, besides this you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So when you read this in context, what you start to see, it becomes obvious. It's about living at, the peace, at peace in the middle of empire, and it's sandwiched between two passages on love. Two passages on how to love each other, how to love people who hurt you. Um, that burning coal passage has, has everything to do with uh, purifying the situation, um, not like, ha I did something nice for you, and now you feel bad. It's about, it's about purifying. It's a temple image about purifying the, the rotten situation. And then afterwards, there's this whole thing about fulfilling uh, the law and how Jesus said that the, the, it's all summed up on loving God and loving others. And sandwiched right in the middle of that is this thing on the government. And how to deal with the government. And what I think is going on here is that um, if we all decided to be against the government, the gospel gets put on the side. It gets put on the shelf. And what he's trying to say is, you, I have a bigger mission. God, Jesus has a bigger mission than you getting hot with passion about taxes and for you to make that your whole thing. So usually when people cite Romans 13, they never cite 8 through 10. It's usually 1 through 7. And this whole idea of summing up the entire teaching of Scripture in Jesus' mind love your neighbor as yourself, is huge. When we read scripture through the lens of love, it has a whole different context. So let's look at Paul and his life. Was, let me ask you this question. Was Paul a law-abiding citizen? No. Not at all. <laughs> like, if you read Paul... Uh, if you read the, the book of Acts, uh, Paul was, okay, the Roman unifying slogan was Caesar is Lord. Paul's unifying slogan for the, peop, the way of Jesus is Jesus is Lord. That's pretty non-law abiding. In fact, in Thessalonica, disturbing the peace, proclaiming a different king, thrown in jail. On and on and on. He, this is not a law and order passage. Paul is a gospel guy, not a law and order guy. The scriptures are full of people who break the laws of empire. The Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1. 
Daniel prays to Yahweh and not Nebuchadnezzar. The apostles in front of the Sanhedrin, they're like, can you stop? And they're like, can't stop, won't stop. And Paul is not contradicting them. If possible, Paul's saying live peaceably with all. But there are times when being faithful to Jesus means disturbing the peace of empire. Romans 13 is not a blind obedience to every, any government passage. If that was the case, Bonhoeffer was out of line in his pushback to Nazi Germany. And we know that's not the case. So if we are confused a little bit, and maybe because we need more context, listen to this. We've been going backwards, and we've been going backwards to get the context in Rome, in the, in the book of Romans. And I know this annoys some of you engineer types, but hang with me as we keep going backwards. Romans 13 needs to be read with the conflict between the weak and the strong. And we talked about the weak and the strong a couple weeks ago in Romans 14 and 15. Terry did a great job. If you haven't heard that, catch up. Paul is not suddenly interrupting the conversation on unity and being together. He's, he's got these two different groups, the, the Jewish Christians that have come back to Rome and then the, the Gentile Christians who have been there the whole time. And, and the problem is, is they have some division between them. That start, he starts talking about at the beginning of the letter. Now, a big marker for Jewish identity is something called zeal. To be Jewish, not only circumcision, things like that, but to be Jewish and to be really good at being Jewish means you were zealous, you were passionate, you were fired up about who God is, okay? And for some, it was a huge temptation to be zealous, to keep that going as Jewish Christians. Even though they were Christians, they followed Jesus, there was that kind of Jewish zeal that they just kept going with. Now, this was a source of division because for the Gentile Christians, uh, they were like, hey, can you tamp it down a bit? If, if you keep doing this, you're gonna get you know, the, the eye of Sauron on us the Roman Empire is going to be looking at us if you keep this junk up. So there was tension, political tension inside the church. The Jews were absolutely frustrated that their taxes were up, that they were kicked out, uh, and they were tempted to hear the gospel as this faithful resistance against empire message. Possibly even to take violence to the empire. Do you remember the term the zealots in Jesus' day? In fact, two of his disciples were zealots. And so, for instance, the Maccabean revolt. Before Jesus' time, Judah Maccabees, the whole thing, they, they led this revolt against Rome, and they had a grand total of six and a half years of peace before Rome stepped on them again. And now, and then you've got Paul's life. In, in, in Galatians, he says, I was far more zealous than my contemporaries. And we know this because Paul chased people around and threw them in prison and, and approved of them dying, right? 
Now, scholars believe it is very unlikely that the Jews at this time, the Jewish disciples in Rome, were going to violently revolt against Rome. Maybe there's just widespread uh, agreement that there wasn't like an uprising that was about to happen. More likely, they had talked about or even already begun to not pay their taxes as an economic revolt. Scott McKnight writes this, telling a group in Rome not to resist but to submit, respect authority, and to pay taxes sounds too much like a response to a planned resistance and not a temptation to rebellion and revolution. So the unity of the family is what Paul's talking about here. It's their primary concern. Not only divided over food customs, which Terry talked about in chapter 14 and 15, but they're divided over their identity around their political allegiances. Imagine if half of our church decided to bring uh, or to do something to bring the city of Arvada government down on us. And they said, no, it is our, we need to stand up. It's our right to whatever. Passionate about the unity of the church family was Paul because it was a public witness of the truth of the gospel. And the unit, we talked about this in week one, the unity of this place influences the capacity for others to trust and apprentice Jesus. So for Paul, transformation of this Jewish zeal into love and honor and hospitality, that was the goal. Because Paul had seen his zeal transitioned to something else. And it points us back to this idea of being a family in Christ. Verse 9 of chapter 12 says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Paul says, your zeal's not bad. Turn it to something better. In the U.S., I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a highly divisive time. And the the body of Christ is actually pretty fractured. And it's a challenge to us. And we can only control our family. Our primary identity should be derived from Christ, not from our political positions and opinions. I'm going to say it again. Our primary identity should, not be, should be derived from Christ, not from our political positions and opinions. Imagine if the church in America was not known as a voting block, but a place where you could be loved and known personally, that healing and hospitality and bending and generosity marked us. The goal isn't to create uniformity in this place. The goal is to create unity. And we have to refuse to get swept up into the partisan kind of political stuff. 
but instead take that passion, take that zeal, and aim it towards an architecture of the gospel that is like devoted to one another and hospitality for people who are very different from us. Because I think this, I actually think that if we we're f- we're faithfully apply Romans as a community, I guarantee that will be a powerful witness to the world. I guarantee it. And it's going to take a lot of creativity to apply this. Especially when you and I bring in a lot of individualism and a lot of consumerism and a lot of materialism. We bring all that, drag all that into our in Christ dome. It's going to take creativity. John Tyson writes this, and I use this definition a lot. So if you're sick of it, well, get used to it. A Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. That's the way of Jesus. That's a community that's about the way of Jesus. So here's a couple questions to close. And then our band's going to come give us a, just lead us in a little bit of response. How are we pressing into our shared identity in Christ over and against the political voices that attempt to divide us? How are we doing that? I just want to just let you know a little bit of the schema of podcasts and nightly news. It's all based on fear. Right or left, it's all about fear. And you're like, not my guys. Yeah, your guys. <laughs> it's about entertainment. It's about clicks. It's about little short vignettes that get thrown on social media. That's what it's about. It's an engine. So how are we pressing into our shared identity in Christ over and against the political voices that attempt to divide us? And here's the other one. How is our zeal being transformed into love, honor, and hospitality? And these are questions for us to talk about in small group, in uh, coffee, in whatever areas of your life. But let me pray. God, you're showing us through this conversation that we're a family. And being a family is what you have for us. And and people take work. God, what you want to do in this world, what you've done in Jesus, what you want to show the world through us is more important than any, any beef we have, any frustration we have with our government, any frustration we have with how we've been treated, You want us to take the passion and the zeal we have in our lives for unimportant things and turn them towards the gospel. Turn them towards love and devotion and honor and hospitality. Show us how to do that together. We pray these things in your name.
Amen.